It's time to accelerate. Hi, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Join me as I host conversations with the leading experts in sales, marketing, sales automation, sales process, leadership, management, training, coaching, any resource that I believe to help you accelerate the growth of your sales, your business, and most importantly, you. Hello, and welcome to Accelerate. I am excited to talk with my guests today. Actually, it's the first time we've done two guests on the same show. Uh, joining me are Robert Mallon and Bill Watkins. They are the founders of the Rusty Lion Academy. Gentlemen, welcome to Accelerate. Thank you so much, Andy. We're glad to be on. All right. Well, so maybe take turns. Robert and Bill, take a minute, introduce yourselves, and uh, give us a little background about you. Bill, why don't you go first, buddy? Well, I think I'll introduce my buddy Robert. Um, oh, there you go. How about that? So, Robert, Robert's my best friend for decades, uh, my treasured friend. Uh, for the first 27 years of his life, he was a corporate executive in the restaurant and software industries. And then I remember this time in our friendship when Robert, in 2002, uh, hired a coach, and he completely shifted gears. And in short order, he became a, a professional uh, speaker, uh, business coach, and business mentor. And he's been doing that ever since 2002. He's got a lot of systems and tools, and it's exactly, uh, he finally lined up his gifts with his passion, and I've been watching him knock it out of the park uh, ever since. He's he's uh, married to, uh, Robert married way up. I just have to say that. He married, <laughs> he, he married Sandy. They've got five uh, wonderful children, uh, and uh, he, they have the most precious granddaughter on the planet, so... Uh, yeah, I was asking him earlier why why he wasn't living where you are in out in God's country in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, and uh, good reasons with all the family being located close to him. Mm-hmm. Absolutely makes sense to me too. And Bill is a uh, we've been best friends now for at least a couple of decades, but he's a uh, West Point graduate. Uh, actually, graduated in the top two percent of his uh, class, which. He would not tell you that, but I'll tell you because I know it. <laughs> he was a, a decorated Army officer, a world-class athlete, and we could spend the whole podcast talking about that. He's done a lot of stuff there, corporate executive, and he actually uh, owns some manufacturing businesses that he started in his garage and actually took them up to an uh, eight-figure you know, valuation when he actually sold them. And he's married to Donna, uh, one of my wife's best friends, and actually one of my best friends, too. Really cool lady, and they do live up in Jackson, Wyoming, and uh, he's out. His hobbies are anything outdoors. His hobbies are not being at the – not being – not doing what we're doing right now, which is being at a desk. Being, being indoors, a, right. Yeah, yeah but, exactly. Yeah, he's outside, I'd say, seriously. I mean, he's got another place down in Florida, but he's outside every single solitary day that when it's not raining, and sometimes even then, but – He's got two uh, grown kids, a son and a daughter, and a, a very special son-in-law, too. So, good family man. Well, excellent. Excellent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, we have to talk a little bit about your athletic achievements because we yeah. were talking about that just a little bit earlier. Is, is You were a national bicycle champion as in the Masters Division mm-hmm. um, not that long ago. Well, I had I had two uh, two separate periods of competition. So I began uh, riding, uh, racing, in at West Point, 
<clears throat> on their cycling team in 1975, 74, 75, I can't remember, and uh, was nominated to the national team and then the Olympic development team. Uh, we boycotted the 80 Olympics. I was an officer then. Um, uh, uh, Jimmy Carter boycotted the mm -hmm. Olympics. Mm -hmm. So I, I stayed on another four years uh, heading towards the 84 Olympics. After the 84 Olympics, I retired, didn't pick up a bike until 2008. And I decided to make another comeback. Well, not make another, but to make a comeback and win a national championship or a world championship. I wanted to get on the podium of a professional race and I accomplished those and uh, after the nationals in 2011 which I won I immediately retired again <laughs> I do ride my bike I retired from competition this time I didn't retire completely from my bike I still ride like you do Andy just for fun just for health you know and all that just for the a little bit for the social you know to meet people but generally speaking it's just a a a, a arrow in my quiver of trying to stay healthy and, and have fun. So when slower riders pass you, what do you I'm do? No problem. <laughs> I don't think any slower riders ever pass. No, no, no. Happens to me all the time, uh, and I'm totally fine with that. So, Andy, let me tell you two quick stories that Bill will not tell you about. But when he started this thing back in 2008, it was about six months in, and I hadn't heard from him like in several days. And uh, when we finally got on the phone, I said, dude, where you been? What's going on? And he said, well, I did a little bike ride. And I said, what'd you do? He said, well, you know, I started at the border of um, Georgia and Tennessee, and I rode my bike down to Florida over the last, what was it, two days, Bill, or three? Yeah, It I was two or three days, but it was like, what? Are you? It was like 400 miles in like three days. And then mm. another time, like about uh, about a year ago or so, he said, man, I did a really good bike ride yesterday. It's like, what'd you do? He said, I went with, with these three other guys who are like in their 30s. He said, we did 174 miles. I was like, yeah. what? He said, we went around the Grand Tetons. Hundreds. Yeah. And then he said, and I'll never forget this, that was the best beer I've ever had. At the oh, end. I, I can imagine. I can imagine. I mean, my, my longest ride is 70, 75 miles, and that was, yeah. uh, that was an awfully nice beer at 75, let alone with 175. So, yeah. all right. So, yeah, I feel suitably humbled. I mean, I, I, no. love, to, I yeah. love to compete. You know, I, I, as we talked about before, I was compete at master swimming i run yep. half marathons i do triathlons but uh not at that level so uh it's a competition though god you don't lose that competitive bone that's why i asked that question well the way that i look at it is this uh andy uh we men <clears throat> and and women uh we we sales you know i know i believe you told us that your audience is sales professionals and and I think there's a direct correlation between athletics at any level and 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 business and sales in particular because you're you're competing to win you're winning the customer and you're winning the order and so it that that in a certain way is your podium and you're you're competing against other salespeople you're particularly competing against yourself exactly and, against yourself so, that's the big one yeah I I think there's a a so whether you are or you are not an athlete or whether if you are an athlete and you're a you know weekend athlete or you're a world class athlete it really doesn't matter because I think you're training yourself that when the competition is over or the training's over or whatever and Monday you show up at work you're a better so-called sales competitor 
in your craft than you were two training sessions before or two competitions before or whatever. So I, I, I think it's great. You don't have to be an athlete to, to be a great sales professional, but, but I think there is a correlation if you are. Okay. Well, let's talk about first, before we get into meat of, of the matter, let's talk a little bit about Rusty Lion Academy. Mm. So tell us what you do and, um, well, start with that. Tell us what you do. I think what we do and what Robert and I are committed to in our life, what we're deeply passionate at and uh, about and gifted at, is is helping men. We, we focus on a male audience uh, between the ages of 30 and 49. 80% of our clients are business owners. Uh, 20% are C-suite execs. Uh, most are married. Most have kids. Um, what we do specifically, now not the how, but the end point, the, the, the outcome, is that, that our, our audience, not just our clients, but our audience, they, they end up building uber successful companies, careers, and they get home for dinner on time. And they get to their daughter's midweek recital and they get to that early Saturday morning game because they're not trapped at work. We give guys clarity, control, and the freedom that they, that they deeply desire. And so we were the guys. We were our own clients. You know, mm-hmm. we're, in our, we're in our 60s. And so your audience right now, they are working like crazy to get that customer, get that order, get that client. And oftentimes what we find is there's a lot of, uh, when you pull the curtain back, there's a lot of frenzy and chaos, maybe a lot of worry and stress. And, and uh, our systems, our company is dedicated to, um, to relieving that, to ending that, to arming that uh, man with tools that uh, and and Andy, you and you and uh, the th- well, you Robert and I talked about this ahead of time. Twenty percent of what we do is tools. Eighty percent is mindset. We re we reset the mindset of our leaders, our professionals, uh, our salespeople, all that, uh, so that they're set up for success. So, obvious question: Why men only? Can I throw that one out there? Yeah. And that, you know, I was going to bring that up because I I was just seeing your audience, like half of your audience just went, what? What? (laughs) What do these guys think they are? That's what my daughter, that's what my daughter said. What, dad? What are you talking about? Yeah. And we, you know, we get, we get asked about that a whole lot. Vision of guys sitting around the campfire banging the drums with Robert Bly. Yeah. Well, Uh, yeah. we, We made a decision early on. We, we've coached women and we've coached many, many women over the years and worked with women. And we absolutely love women. We, um, you know, we're both married and very happily. We both have daughters and uh, I've got a granddaughter. And so it's not that we don't like him. But one of our things early on when we started really developing the academy was we want to be world class, not half something. You know what I'm getting ready to say there. And so we decided that in the way that we were looking at it, if we were at 95%, that was not world class. And so when we started thinking about who will we be coaching, um, we know men, we've been men, we've been 30 to 49 year old men, we've gone all the way through that. I've watched my wife give birth uh, many times, but I've never done it. And I can't really tell you what it feels like. I can tell you it looks like it hurts pretty bad, you know, but 
Um, and, you know, there's so many things about a woman. We go really, really deep, not just in their business, uh, but in their, their nine other areas of their life, too. And we just did not feel like we could give world-class coaching uh, to women because we've not experienced that. Bill, you got anything to add to that? Or? Yeah, well, <laughs> Andy, uh, when we told our, our wives of this decision, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They, they said, well, you know what? That's one of the smartest things you've ever done because no matter how many books you read, you still don't get us. Uh, you don't get us. So, uh, yeah. So we probably so picked that, the right uh, tribe. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, I think there's <clears throat> there's some value in that. I mean, I, it's, I'm sure there are people listening to look at it askance, but I mean, even the sales business, there's a, a thriving organization, women sales pros that run by some friends of mine that, sure. that uh, yeah, that's, it's, there's a unique experience set that a lot of women have coming up in the profession that, you know, quite honestly, men don't experience. Yeah. And it's, it's hard to empathize with all the challenges and barriers that they have uh, put in their way that we don't. But so, for like, the women who are listening right now, we want your men because we will make them like awesome and you will like them a whole lot. No, oh, okay. All right. Well, let's let's jump right into it then. So, one of the topics I love talking about is changing habits, and you guys have written a lot about this. And mm. and um, you know, one habit you talk about that uh, sort of a fundamental habit that people need to have is, is recharging their batteries. And I thought we'd mm-hmm. start there because usually it's unusual to talk about a, a a rest and relaxation habit as opposed to a work habit. But cool. talk about the importance of that. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna send this pitch to Robert, he's going to hit it out of the park because it's one of the things that we are talking about every darn day. We had we onboarded a new client yesterday and we found out the guy sleeps between four and six hours a night and he's been doing it for years. And he's very successful, but he's challenged right well, now. And what's he, that, he's very successful in a way, but then in in a way. he's not like he's got bags under his eyes. He look he's tired as can be and all this type of stuff. But, right. you know, really, when it comes to recharging the batteries, Andy, I'm, I'm just going to put it. There's a lot of things we could talk about, but really three different things. And I'm going to kind of go from order of importance. I think number one is sleep. Yeah. Uh, sleep, number one. And most people put other things in front of that. Food, number two, and then Mm -hmm. exercise, number three. But you need a real good balance of that. And, Bill, I'll take the sleep one here. Um, People, you know, it's been scientifically proven that people need sleep. And they need seven and a half, eight hours of sleep every night. People think that they're... They're not living at full capacity, you know, if they're sleeping that much. But biologically, you just flat can't do it. Interesting thing, uh, sleep cycles uh, are one and a half hours long. So there's there's several different stages you go into. Mm-hmm. But when you uh, at the top, if you started a circle like at the bottom and then went all the way around and then back down to the bottom, at the very top is what's called REM sleep, which everybody's heard of. But that's your deepest, deepest sleep. So when you're in that part of it, like I could walk up to you and almost shake it and you wouldn't wake up. But then you go back down into a very, very light sleep and then you go back. Based on the fact that it's an hour and a half long. You need to sleep five or maybe six sleep cycles per night. So five would be five times 1.5, seven and a half hours. So here's, here's a crazy thing, Andy, that people don't know. If you sleep eight hours, you're going back into deeper sleep when you wake up. 
So if you if you wake up right at seven and a half hours, you're at your lightest part of sleep, and you'll wake up and you feel refreshed. But if if you wait to eight hours or eight hours and 15 minutes or something, you're actually in deep, deep sleep and you wake up and you don't feel good, like almost all day long, it actually affects you. So worst case scenario would be four sleep cycles, which would be exactly six hours. So if you're on a red eye or if you're, you know, I don't know, if you're coming back from a trip and you've just got a short amount of time, don't do six and a half hours. Stop it at six because that's going to stop you at the right time. But preferably try to every night sleep at seven and a half hours. And the key to that would be don't think about what time you want to get up. Make sure that you go to bed at the right time so that you get the seven and a half hours and then do it there. So I'm always looking at when am I going to bed, not what time do I need to get up, if that makes sense. Sure. Well, and you guys so, have described, you know, when you look at the three elements, you know, rest, food, exercise, I mean, that. Those are the elements of a training regime. Let's say if you're a regimen, if you're if you're training for an event, mm-hmm. uh, so it's really like training for life. I mean, you need to have these three components. You need to be well rested. You need to eat well, and you need to exercise. And I know people on the show are probably absolutely tired of me talking about exercise, but it's it's a common topic. That it's a key. Up. If you want if you want to be a high performer, you got to do all three of those. But the interesting thing is, really, exercise is probably the least. Although you need to do it, but the sleep part and the food part, you got to get good. Oh yeah. my gosh, it's so crazy! And yep. Andy, you know you. Why? Why would? Why would someone? Let's say that your audience has uh, uh, athletes in it. Why would they do something on the athletic side of their life that they don't do on the life side of their life? I, I just do not get that. But um, we we have you know uh, executives and, and business owners that uh, eat crap food. They sleep a handful of hours. They sleep poorly when they do sleep. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they don't have the science of sleep uh, down. Um, they 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 ignore their fun and recreation. So their work 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 and the kids and you know fixing the garage and whatever all the time. There's nothing filling up their tank, and they think that they're bringing their best game to to their work. I just do not get that. And and we see it all the time. Now, here's the problem. The media, uh, Huffington Post, TV, uh, Fast Company Magazine, Inc., Forbes, Fortune, all these magazines. You know what we read about is all the wins. And it's like this person is bulletproof. I mean, they can sl- we even read about people who sure, sleep. sure. They brag that they, they've not slept for more than two hours a night because they get so much done. Oh, please. You know, I, 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 I'm sorry. I think that's a pile of crap. And, but we're surrounded by, number one, our peers doing that. Our badge of courage is saying, oh, I haven't taken a vacation in three years. Yeah, dude. Oh, that's awesome. Or 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 Mary says, "Oh, I've got so much going on at home, my kids, my husband, you know, my work that, you know, I figured out how to get by in 3 hours. I'm very efficient." Oh, please. But we're surrounded by that and we, those people are held up as our models. And so we end up thinking that we're an aberration when we jump into that lifestyle, lack of lack of exercise, lack of nutrition, lack of sleep, lack of fun and all that sort of stuff, Andy. And we, we think we're broken 
and that we just need to stay at it longer, try a new habit, whatever, because we're going to end up to be like them very soon. And I, I, you're not, you're, you're on a, you're on a downward spiral. You're, you're in the plane and it's spinning down towards earth and you're going to crash. Um, this is not the way to peak performance. Yeah, I agree. And, and you guys talk a lot about work-life balance. Yep. And, but the other term we hear more and more is work-life integration. Mm-hmm. And, to- totally agree. And so it seems to me it's more a, a task of work-life integration as opposed to balance. Mm. Um, totally. I mean, because I, I, mean, I, I think of my own self. I mean, I, I'm, I'm on vacation quite a lot, actually. <laughs> but, when I, but when I go on vacation, I also have a business that Good. maybe requires a couple hours a day. That's okay. I don't mind working a couple hours a day on vacation because I have a lot of fun the rest of the day. There you go. You know, Andy, you're totally right. We call we when we write about it, we call it work-life balance, but that's only because we're throwing the right bait at the fish. When when our our reader pops in, uh, uh, they will learn shortly enough that we don't believe in work-life balance. There is no work-life balance. There is no way to find the sweet spot. It's always an ebb and a flow. It's an integration of our work and our life. For example, um, you're going on vacation, Andy, and you are going to not be doing a lot of things that you would be doing if you had eight hours of work in front of you. And that's fine. So during that time, you're going to work less. You're going to vacation more. Then you're going to come back. You're going to vacation way less, maybe nothing, and you're going to work a lot more. How about if somebody has a baby in the family? What happens for the first six weeks, six months? Baby, 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 baby. Guess what's not happening? Maybe sleep, maybe, you know, uh, work, whatever. But generally speaking, it's an ebb. My work is going to ebb a little bit because I'm having a baby mm-hmm. and I'm going to I'm going to flow in the family side of my life for a short time. So you're right. We 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 sell work life balance because that's what everybody wants to hear. We yeah. give work life integration because that's what everybody needs. There's a funny story there, Andy, if I could throw this sure, at you. Sure. About a year and a half ago or so, we we were working with this guy. He's um, He owns oh a gosh, really yes. nice like manufacturing company, basically. But anyway, so we're, we're going along with him. This was in April, and we're talking about goals for the next quarter and all. And we've spent like maybe 30, 45 minutes like really digging deep with him. And we think we've got everything honed out. And he goes, <laughs> he goes, <laughs> oh, yeah, by the way. On May 19th, now this was back in 2015, May 19th, uh, yeah, we're adopting our first child. And Bill and I are like, dude, hold, oh man, hold the phone. You know, He hadn't said one word about that the whole time that we're talking. And we're like, scratch everything we just talked about here. You don't understand what's getting ready to happen. Mm-hmm. So the integration for that first four months from him, we forced him. We literally forced him. Now, he stayed in, you know, he kept going after the business part, but we pulled that way back so that he could be with his wife and his newborn and experience and and really rock it out with that. But he didn't get it, the integration part. He just thought, well, yeah, we got a new kid, so it's going to... You know, clueless. Now that's men. That's men right there. That's what men do. Yeah. Well, that's true. That's true. That is that is what men do. So, so let's talk about another habit then. And, and I loved another article you'd written about beating procrastination because, from a sales mm. standpoint, this is this is a killer that happens, and it's habit that needs to be changed. You know, one of the key things you guys know about, obviously, in sales is call reluctance. Well, call reluctance is just a form of procrastination. Poor follow up is a form of sure. procrastination. Yep. Um, 
So you talk about three different procrastination cycles, fear-based, fatigue-based, and perfectionist-based. I want to sort of go through those because I think it's valuable for people to hear about that. So let's start with fear-based. I mean, when you're afraid of doing something, you procrastinate it, as you talk about, it really becomes a self-reinforcing habit. Robert, I, I think um, I think what happens, uh, Andy, is that we we... Like I said, we read all these stories about people. Who, all, all we read about is success. And but if you talk, and I'm surrounded by, you know, uh, very successful uh, entrepreneurs, business owners, investors, and all that. There's you know, there's more billionaires in uh, Teton County than I think there are in any other county in the United States. But if you talk to them, they say, "Yep, buddy, I was an overnight success, and it only took me 30 years." Mm-hmm. Um. So I think when you dive deep into their stories, um, and and few people out here have ego, um, they have confidence, but they don't have ego, they will pull the curtain back and they'll say, hey, listen, you want to hear about my 10 failures before I hit my first home run? And and so I, I think, though, when we see people and when we listen to people and when we read about people, all we read about is the home run. This gives us a false impression that we should be hitting success right out of the box. We should pick up the phone, we should write an email, and we should get the order. Uh, it's totally wrong. What we should do is we should say, this is a process. It's a process for me to grow. It's a process to engage. And it's a process, like when I go fly fishing, I might, I might throw out 10 different flies in 15 different places before maybe I get a bite on my, on my line. Now, when I go out with a guide, he throws the right fly to the right place. He catches a trout just like that. But it took him 25 years to, to gain the skill to do that. And I think the analogy is very much the same. So we procrastinate a lot of times because we have the illusion that failure is not an option. Totally an option. And the more and the and the more we am not that we celebrate failure, like there's this thing right. going around right. in the media. Fail, fail fast and so on, right. Ah, fail fast, but don't necessarily throw a party and and say, yeah, 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 we're so great because we failed all the time. No, 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 no. That when when pro teams look at the game films, they're not necessarily celebrating what they did wrong. They're learning from it. And so I think when we rejigger our mindset and go, yeah, failure is an option. It happens. I'll learn from it. I'll pivot. I'll grow. I'll get better. Then we can move forward and pick up the phone. We don't have call reluctance. We don't have email sending reluctance. We go for it. Well, as you said, you have to embrace the the discomfort and mm. and really envision what's the worst thing that can happen if somebody that's, says no. That's two keys right there. Num- number yeah. one to add to that for the fear based thing is there. There's an old thing, Cortez. If you remember, yeah, him, burn, burn the ships, burn the ships. You know, and so you're the, committed. The problem is, yeah, when you fear, when fear is holding you or making you procrastinate, you've not burned the ships yet. So there's a saying, and I won't give you the whole thing, but it's like until one is committed, there's hesitancy, the chance to draw back, always in effectiveness, and it just keeps on, but. When you burn the ships or burn the bridges or whatever, you actually 
then can go forward. But you've got to you've got to take that time and you've got to burn it. I had a guy today on a we do a podcast too, Andy. As you know, you've been mm-hmm. on our podcast, yep. the uh, Lions Den for Businessmen. But this guy was talking about the worst thing that ever happened to him. And he, mm-hmm. he, he described the whole situation, but I said, if you could put all of that lesson into one sentence, what would it be? He said, you know what? He said, I got out of the driver's seat and I got into the passenger seat. And he said, that's the first time I've ever done it in my life, but I didn't know what to do. I was, he was in fear. And so I decided to get out of the driver. He said, if I was to give advice to the lions, it would be always stay in the, the, the driver's seat. And don't go over. The other would be what you just said is embrace the worst case scenario for the fear thing. So if you can live with the worst case scenario mm. and, and really embrace it, you, you'll yep. be okay. You'll be all right yep. because it's probably going to be a, better than that, at least a little bit, if not a whole heck of a lot. And so try to figure out what is the worst thing that could possibly happen. And then just ask yourself if it does what can I do? You know, there, there's another, if I could throw this out sure, there, and I, I definitely don't want to hog this, but there's something we teach uh, called, and, and I remember specifically thinking this back in 1988. This is where the thought came from, but I can do anything for 20 minutes. So uh, yeah. many of your people are salespeople and they've got to pick up the phone. They've got to make phone calls. I've done that, man. Mm-hmm. When I was, when I was in, um, you know, software, I did a lot of sales and I had to pick up the phone and, you know, there, there's a lot of hesitancy there. But what I did was I would set a timer. Like if you've got an iPhone or a smartphone, set the timer for 20 minutes and then hit start and then just start dialing. Okay. You, you can shovel poop. For 20 minutes. You might not like the smell, but you can do it if you got to. Okay, Here's what's going to happen. Within one minute, you will totally forget that that timer's going. Within 10 minutes, you're into what you're doing, you know, and that's going to stop the procrastination. Within 20 minutes, when the timer goes off, you're usually in the middle of a conversation that's going really well with somebody and you go and you turn it off and you just keep on going. But the key to it, Andy, is that if you hate what you're doing at 20 minutes, stop and then do it again tomorrow. Give yourself permission to actually say to yourself, ah, oh, man, I did 20 minutes good for me, as opposed to I suck, you know? So it's really just a mental, a, a mindset that you can actually have. I can do anything for 20 minutes and go for it. Yeah, yeah. and you guys stress right on. I mean, one of the, uh, to me, the big things with uh, procrastination is, is we become so addicted to the comfort. Mm-hmm. And even though it does not giving us a satisfactory outcome, we choose, uh, we choose comfort over discomfort yeah, in yeah. all cases, even though discomfort is going to bring us closer to our goals. Absolutely. And so you have the, to. The, the status quo is familiar and every one of us, well, not every one of us, but the majority of us hate change. Mm-hmm. So we, we stand in the status quo. Yeah. But it's, it's, the, it's the professionals that, that, that step forward into the unknown, knowing like what you just said. That failure is an option, that I'll recover, that it won't be catastrophic, I won't die, everything will be fine, eventually, maybe a little traumatic and, you know, for a little while. Those are the people that step forward, and, and they're the game changers of the world. Those are the people that your audience want to be, right? Yeah, but, absolutely. Uh, but I, just, I was just uh, writing a, uh, a, an article and talking about uh, watching reality TV is not learning the reality. 
<laughs> I can watch reality TV about surviving in in the wilderness of uh, you know Alaska, for example. But until I get out into the wilderness, I don't know how to survive and do it myself. And so um, a lot of us just sit in our chair and read magazines and newspapers and all that about how to be great professionals, change the world, and all that. And we think, to a certain extent, uh, that that's okay, and it's not. Yeah, no, I agree. Okay, we're going to the last segment of my show here. I've got some standard questions I ask all my guests. And I'll pose this first question once, and you can either answer it together or separately. And because you've probably both been through the scenario. And in this mm-hmm. hypothetical scenario, you are a vice, you've just been hired as vice president of sales by a company whose sales have stalled out, they've flatlined, they've slumped, and CEO board are anxious to get things unstuck back on track. So, what two things would you do your first week on the job that could have the biggest impact? Hmm. How about if I take one and you take one, Bill? All right. Which one do you want me to take? Well, I'm going to go with one that just came to mind. Here's what I do, Andy. I would sit down with every salesperson, Mm. and instead of talking to them about sales, I would talk to them about them, and I would take about 30 minutes. I would Mm. take three of those 30 minutes, and I would introduce myself to them, and then I would take 27 minutes, and I would find out all about them, and I would write down the answers that they gave to me, like what their hobbies are, you know, what their home life is like, what their, you know, desires are for the future and everything, because they're going to forget that you wrote that down. And then I would memorize that stuff over the next several weeks. But what I want to do is I want to get them on my team. And I would also be very humble. Um, This is part of the same answer, but I'd be real humble. and I'd ask them to help me to get on board and show me the ropes as opposed to me telling them what to do. Okay, good. Bill? I think one of the things, uh, oftentimes there's a disconnect in in sales success and uh, where sales organizations and salespeople are right now, is that we don't truly, 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 truly understand our customer. We haven't defined that customer. What I would do is I would get my salespeople together and I would say, you know what, I want to write the story of our customer today. I want to write their story. I want to know where they live, uh, how they live, uh, what they struggle with, uh, what they struggle with it outside of work, what they struggle with at work. Um, I want to know how old are they. Um, and then I want to connect um, what they're looking for, what they're struggling with, and what we offer. And so I want to write the book our customer's book, and by that it's their autobiography, how they would write their story if we asked them to. And then I want to, secondly, totally understand their struggle and and the solution that we provide. I believe too many people, uh, too many sales organizations, too many sales people understand their customer at the surface level. Mm-hmm. And and then we we are we are talking in ways that are not resonating with the deepest pain, the biggest struggle, the biggest challenge of our customer. Therefore, our solution is overlooked. Okay. Great answer. So right. who got who got the gold medal and who got the silver medal, Andy? I'm well, just kidding. <laughs> I'll tell you when you go one more off the air, I'll tell you. Okay, pretty good. So now some, some rapid fire questions and you can give me one word answers or elaborate and I'll just throw it out there and you can each each answer this question. So when you personally, you, Robert, you, Bill, are out selling your services, mm-hmm. what, what's your most powerful sales attribute? 
Asking for the sale, I would think. Um, we do definitely ask for the sale, and we we somewhat do an assumptive close, and I know you know what that means, but when we we go into the sales meeting already thinking that they bought, so we assume it into existence. Okay. That would be one that I think of, Bill. I think, Andy, um, we're fans of Gary Vaynerchuk. Mm-hmm. He wrote a book, Jab, 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 Right Hook. Mm. I believe um, by the time we get to closing the, the so-called closing the sale, and by closing the sale, we just ask a man and we say, listen, dude, do you want help or do you want to keep going it alone? I mean, that's our close. But to that question, we have delivered so much value to that man, that leader, that professional that he truly understands that we have his best interests at heart, that we truly deeply care, that we are we are authentic, we're passionate, we're capable. And so if he's that guy uh, where there's chemistry and he's our perfect customer, so to speak, and he's at a place in his life where finally he says, yeah, I do want some help, then it's easy. It's totally easy. All we got to do is ask. And if he says no, um, we use the assumptive close. Like we do believe that if a man has gone through our value chain and he's at the point where we ask him that question, 80%, 90% of the time, he's going to say yes. But if he says no, we're going to love that guy and cheer for him, support him, encourage him. And um, we totally get it. Listen, Robert and I turned down a lot of valuable help back in our day. So uh, we totally understand that mindset. And I think when you put those two together, um, we're so low pressure that sometimes we wonder whether we should change it. (laughs) (laughs) But but we don't. But we don't. We just keep doing what we're doing. And um, All right. So next question for you. Again, for each of you. uh, Who's your sales role model? Mm. <laughs> well, uh, my sales role, I've loved Zig Ziglar. Um, I loved a, a boss that I had, um, Baxter uh, Stevens. Mm. But um, I have to say that the way that, that uh, when someone asks me how we should so-called close, and I'm going to say this and then I'm going to give you a disclaimer, it's Billy Graham. Mm. And, um, you know, we're, you know, Robert and I have our, our own personal faith. We're not a faith-based organization. We don't, you know, seek to coach certain types of faiths or whatever. But when I say Billy Graham, here, here's what I mean by that. Billy was deeply passionate. He deeply cared. And he tried everything to get people to make the decision that he felt was important in their life. And he became very, very good at it, obviously. And mm-hmm. he and people truly the reason one of the reasons why he became so famous and so loved is because he loved he loved his, the people that were in his audiences and he truly deeply cared so i think if i was to set a role model and when i describe to our team how badly robert and i want to help mm-hmm. uh, transform the lives of a million men um, before he and i are going to stop stop doing this thing um it's that all right robert you know, uh, there, there's no way I can know the name, but there were two people, and it was in 1996, and I went to a two-week sales training thing when I first went into software. And um, I can remember these people, and it was down by Emory University, but the material they gave me was outstanding. 
And what I did was I became a student of that material. And over the next several years, um, I mean, I, I studied it. I, I really, really studied it. And the, the problem is I can't tell you their names. I truly, and I can't even tell you the name of the company that, that, you know, was a sales training company. But that would be it. And, you know, I'm I'm thinking back to all the sales training books and nobody's name has come. I mean, Zig Ziglar, like Bill said, you know, but um, there was just a lot of stuff that I studied. And I hate to say I'm not getting a good name. Well, right. well okay. Well, let me ask a follow-up yeah. question. Maybe you have an answer. Maybe not, based on what you just said. So what's one book you'd recommend every salesperson read? Uh, I don't mind. Go ahead. Bill. Um I, I would re- recommend Essentialism mm. um, by uh, Greg McKeon. Mm-hmm. So Greg uh, is a friend of ours. He's been on our podcast. And Essentialism revolves around um, finding the, the – and Gary Keller wrote a book called One Thing. They kind of right. align. Um, right. And so I believe every salesperson, every professional, every man or woman has to sift down um, the – countless uh, many, many things in their high-velocity, high-impact life into the essential priorities. Gary, uh, Gary Keller and uh, Greg McKeon provide the assets mm. for a sales professional to look at you know, everything going on in their world, uh, every client, every deal, every offer, all the things they got to go on, and continuously pick those things that bring the most impact, make everything faster, better, and uh, more success. All right. I'll throw one out here, uh, and this one I'm not sure if it's even still in print, but it was called "How to How I Raised Myself from sure. Failure to Success Frank in Selling." Becker. Frank Betker. I read that book. It seems like a million years ago. I mean, it, it's got to be at least 25 to maybe even 30 years ago. But interesting thing, I love that book. And my oldest son Joe, probably six months ago, he said, "Dad, I just listened to a book on Audible called." How I Raised Myself mm-hmm. from Fair to See. He said, that was one of the best books I've ever read. And I was like, ah, son, I read that like when you were a baby. I read that book. But that's a great book. That is a great, great book. book. Yeah. Absolutely great book. Okay, great answers. All right, last question. What music's on your playlist these days? Mm. <laughs> I think that would be more directed towards me, Bill. <laughs> I know. Every time we start a meeting, Robert yeah. comes in with these, this crazy music. Actually, I'll give you uh, Joe Bonamasso. And if you want to listen to a couple of great mm-hmm. ones from him, Dust Bowl and Slow Gin, which are awesome. And let me give you just a song that I've really come to love here in the last few weeks. Hold, uh, Damn Good by David Lee Roth. And I don't know what album that was on, but oh my gosh, what a book to, or what a what a song. Just listen to that. Pride and Joy, Stevie Ray Vaughan, Dreams, the Almond Brothers fan. I mean, it goes on and on. All right. Bill, yeah. nothing for you? Uh, no, I'm I'm currently jamming to a uh, very loud reggae. So I have the entire Marley family, uh, mm-hmm. Bob, Bob and all his family, uh, Peter Tosh, Steel Pulse, and uh, gosh, there's one more. Gosh, what is there? Oh, it's a band called Travel Seeds. I actually don't know the artists in there, but so Robert has to put in up with my reggae. I put up with his um, '70s uh, classic G- rock. Yes, yeah, classic '70s rock. Okay, rock. excellent. All right, guys. Good stuff. So um, thanks for being on the show. Tell folks how they can get in contact with you. 
Well, there's two ways to to uh, get in contact with us. Uh, one is through our free membership site, RustyLionAcademy.com. Right on the homepage, you can join the Lions Den. You get free access, immediate access to um, our weekly uh, content, but you also get free access to about 15 hours of some of our best training videos and uh, and uh, resources. And the other way is Robert and I just finished today, right before this podcast, uh, we do a weekly live training um about basically about how to um get it all how to win at work and win at home and win at life all at the same time it's uh rusty lion academy forward slash live training one word l-i-v-e training you get us for 60 minutes you give us 60 minutes and we'll give you a changed life all right excellent well good well thanks for being on the show today and uh, remember friends Thanks for listening today and make it a part of your day every day to deliberately learn something new to help you accelerate your success. And an easy way to do that is to make this podcast accelerate a part of your daily routine, whether you listen and commute in the gym or as part of your morning sales meeting. That way you won't miss any of my conversations with top business experts like my guests today, Robert Mallon and Bill Watkins, who shared their expertise of how to accelerate the growth of your business. So thanks for joining me. Until next time, this is Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard and want to make sure you don't miss any upcoming episodes, please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher.com. For more information about today's guests, visit my website at andypaul.com.